as our name states, we are the... <laughs> the Justice House of Prayer. And um, really, it's the understanding of the New Testament church that our primary function is to operate as the house of prayer and that's actually what Jesus declared in the New Testament is my house shall be called a house of prayer and that the preaching of the word evangelism, compassion um, mercy ministries, everything that we do is from the place of prayer and ministering to the Lord first and foremost and then man is ministered to as a byproduct Um, my name is Bethany uh, nice to meet you. Would love to meet you in person afterwards um, if this is your first time here. But we're actually finishing up a series on the book of Acts. Uh, we're coming down home stretch here. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if I should or should not tell you that we began in January. But <laughs> so we obviously, <laughs> I saw some mouths, some jaws drop. <laughs> Um, We obviously did not do acts every single week that between guest speakers and then just things that we felt like the Lord was highlighting uh, within our community that we gave time and space to. Um, It wasn't being uh, addressed every week, but we do really value the study of the word line upon line and precept upon precept. Um, It could get very easy to kind of go according to topics and even address issues and throw the Word of God in there, um, which is very easy to do with the preaching of the gospel sometimes. Um, But we really value taking the Word of God and that really as a community we would understand a whole book of the Bible in context of what the Lord is speaking from the beginning of the chapter to the end of that chapter. Um, So we want to be people of the Word that are rooted and grounded in the Word. Um, So I personally, I don't know if anybody would agree with me, but I feel like it's been a a great gift to our community. And and if you're wondering why Book of Acts, um, we actually just established um, this Sunday reality of gathering together in September of last year. And so we actually felt very formative and foundational for our community is that we look and study at the birthing of the New Testament church when the church was birthed and began, and what the Lord intended it to be. And that that would be the model that we adhere to and that we strive to embody as a community. Um, So today, actually, we're going to cover Acts chapter 21. We're going to do a short little recap of last week, just because it kind of goes right into this week. And um, I can honestly say, I think I got more feedback about last week than I've gotten about any message, (laughs) which is very funny because um, last week, my intention was to spend like five to 10 minutes going through an outline of Acts chapter 20 and getting to 21. And I didn't get to 21. And anybody that was here, I was pretty disappointed. Um, And so I kind of felt like, well, that was the preface and we actually didn't get to the actual message. But there were several people um, that some of the things that we touched upon are really things that we all wrestle with and are seeking the Lord about and looking for direction on. Um, So we're going to kind of touch on those key points, um, and then we're going to move on and spend um, the rest of our time on Acts chapter 21. So basically, Acts chapter 20, I'm going to give you the summary here, is it was actually, Paul was on his way back to his final missionary journey to Jerusalem. And on his way there, he actually was in Ephesus. So what we find in Acts chapter 20 is it was actually his last message for the church of Ephesus. It was his final, basically, parting words. And what we did is we went over the seven points of what he spoke to the church of Ephesus. And obviously, if he was addressing the church of Ephesus, these seven points that Paul was basically leaving them with. 
There are things that we should look at closely, and we should also evaluate and ask the Lord that they would be present and that we would walk them with integrity and clarity in our own lives. Um, So number one, in Acts chapter 20, verse um, 18 through 19, he addressed that we're to strive for a servant's heart. Um, And ultimately, all of us, that speaks to the the place of taking the posture of a servant at all times. And if you look at, if you say, I want to be like Jesus, Jesus was the supreme servant. Oftentimes when we think I want to be like Jesus, we think I want a healing anointing, I want boldness, I want, you know, all of these things, but Jesus was a servant. So if we want to be like Jesus, let's take the posture of a servant. Um, Point number two that he addressed in verse uh, verse 20 of chapter 20 was the preaching of the word at all times. And what he highlighted, and I should actually preface by saying everything that Paul addressed in these seven points, he used his own life as an example. And so what he highlighted is he said, I have preached to you in the public place, and I have preached to you from house to house. And what he was saying was, I have preached to you in public and in private. And that that is the model for our lives, that in the public place and in the private place, that we live speaking the word, declaring the word, living the word. Um, His third point was the preaching of the gospel. The, the preaching of the word of God, and he delineated it this way in verse 22 through 23. Um, he deline- um, I'm sorry, if you jump down, actually, he delineated the preaching of the gospel through repentance, the preaching of calling people to repentance. That was actually how he defined the preaching of the gospel. Um, and then verse 22 through 23, he specifically exhorted them and used his own life, again, as an example, was to, pre- to be prepared to suffer for Christ's sake. Um, in verse 27, his exhortation was to be lovers of truth and do not sacrifice truth for the, truth for the sake of unity. Um, this really kind of speaks to the posture of the church and kind of the age-old question of where do, how do you marry truth and unity and which one kind of reigns supreme. And really what he was saying was you hold to truth and never compromise for the sake of unity. And truly, if you, we really understood biblical unity, that when we are in unity with the heart of God, we come into unity with one another. That's true biblical unity, is that when we're seeking the heart of God, he brings us into unity and we become like-minded when, when we're in one accord with who, who he is and how he thinks. Um, verse 29, he spoke specifically about guarding against deception. Um, and he called them actually savage wolves. And he was basically asking them to guard their hearts from false teaching. I mean, that speaks to all of us today. It's the place of truly studying the word of God for ourselves so that we don't get swept away by every wind of doctrine. The new cultural trend, the new book that's out, the new preacher that's on the scene, the new megachurch, all of those things that we're not moved kind of even by the masses, but we're, 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 we're established and we're secure and we're firm in the word of God. Um, And basically, um, in verse 33, he actually moved on to specifically exhort not to be motivated by profit. And what he was really addressing was the preachers of the gospel, that that the gospel isn't for the making of money, it's for the saving of souls and the equipping of saints. And that if we start living for the place of profit, the word of God and the gospel will be tainted. That it will no longer be pure, because there will be another motive other than... And then he lastly closed out with an exhortation... Um, which I don't even want to rush really through these because they're all important, but the last one was to uphold the weak and give to the poor, living uh, lives of extravagant giving. Um, And really it was in this context, I actually shared from this book, um, A.W. Tozer, for any of you that are familiar with him, um, but there was really a large response in the fact that I think in 
a society, maybe if we were preaching in certain places of Africa or certain things like that, finance and materialism wouldn't be such a strong thing that needs to be addressed in the church because we live in such a wealthy nation and we live in such a materialistic culture. Really what happens is, is that when we take certain passages of scripture regarding Paul and different postures that the word of God takes concerning finance, it really causes us to have to grapple some of it with our cultural understanding of how we live as a culture and a nation. Um, and one of the things that we addressed last week was just the place of that finances are a gift from the Lord. It's how we steward them. And basically in talking and, and emailing and praying with different people, even regarding this, I want to make it really, really clear that we believe finances are a gift from God. And we even believe, that, and I pray, that each and every one of you, that God blesses you with wealth. The core issue is our heart attitude toward finance. The Bible never says that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says the love of money. So hear me. I could be somebody that makes $30,000 a year, and there could be another person that makes $300,000 a year. And I as an individual could struggle more with the love of money, meaning the desiring it and being envious for it and adjusting my life and priorities around attaining more. And the person that makes 300000 that finance is not saying that their heart is out of order. They could be somebody that's completely free of materialism and wealth. And I'm going to be honest with you. You can never stand in judgment. If somebody drives a clunker and somebody drives an Audi, just be very clear on this matter is when it comes to biblical Christianity. The person driving an Audi might only be living on 10% of their income and sowing 90% into the kingdom of God. So you can never judge by outward, and I don't want anybody, when we discuss finance or sowing into the kingdom or postures about money, to almost take on a poverty mentality of like, oh, if I have money, then somehow I'm, you need to understand something. It's all our posture towards the finance. It's all how we steward it, and it's that issue of the love of money. It's that, literally what that word means in the Greek is that if we almost have a passion and desire for money, and really what it speaks to is that place of, in our decision-making, what drives us. If the acquiring of more finance is what determines our decisions, then that actually becomes supreme above God. But if the desiring to honor God is what has the preeminence in our lives, Him sowing and, and pouring out upon your life is just a result of you honoring first the kingdom of God, and then He is adding all of those things to it. Um, so we're just going to close out on that point, and I'm actually, in, the, in light of A.W. Tozer, I'm going to read you a story that he has, and um, the way that he defines it, which I agree wholeheartedly with. It says, Over the years, I've seen young men who, while they were in high school and college, struggled, fought, prayed, loved God, and, um, and long ago on very, very little, meaning they had little finance. Then they met a girl who had the same experience, fighting her way through and working after hour after hour to get enough to continue to help with the home. She had little, and um, he had little, and then they met each other and they got married. Then they got out of school, settled down, got good jobs, used his sanctified Christian intelligence to get a good position. <laughs> Soon, the money. <laughs> Soon, the money was coming. In, in, in hand over fist, and they moved into a finer home, got a bigger car, a bigger television, a finer model of everything. They began to come to choir less often, choir less often, into prayer meetings rarely, into church less frequently, and they began to take long holiday excursions. 
Um, soon they backslid. Pro- prosperity is dangerous for Christians. And this is how he defines it, actually. And this is what I love. He says, what can you do? Am I saying that I wish all Christians were poor people? If all people were poor, how would we ever manage to keep missionaries on the mission field? How would we ever promote Christian public publications of, of books and Bibles? How would we ever get books into the public? How would we ever keep schools going? How would we finance God's work to keep our missionaries going, our radio programs live, and our books flowing? How would we do it? No, it is not that God wills for, that his people should be poor. It is that he wills that they should prosper, but know what to do with prosperity. I give you three rules to handle uh, prosperity well. And I mentioned to the several of you this week in conversation that I, off the top of my head, didn't know the three world rules. Rule number one is thank God reverently. And he just goes through that whatever we are given, whether it be small or large, I mean, honestly, some people probably think I'm religious. I still have my little boy say grace for his food. And it's not because I, to be honest, I want Abram to know it is a gift that we have food. Don't take that for granted. There's many children that don't sit down three times a day. We are blessed. And so it's almost like in the midst of our day to take the time to say, this is because of the goodness of God. Let's take time to acknowledge that and never, ever, ever take his blessings for granted. I mean, it's a good thing. Like, not, not in any way for fear in your child, but whether it be a vehicle, whether it be a toy. I know sometimes um, if we're able to get Abram something that he desires, we'll very clearly say to him, Abram, you need to thank Jesus that mommy and daddy have the resources to get you that. Like, you know what I mean? It's a blessing. It's not something that you just get whatever toy you desire, you have whatever you want. It's, it's learning a heart of gratitude. And to be honest... Sometimes if he wants something in addition, I mean, actually we have a rule, if he is getting one thing, no matter how much he wants something else, we have a rule, it's that one item. And really, honestly, even if we could afford it, we feel like it's the place of saying it's that one thing, and we'll see in due time if we get the other one. Because we want him that one thing, be grateful. Be grateful. Don't be looking for what's bigger and better and next. Be grateful. Take a moment, slow down, appreciate it. <laughs> um, so this is his point number one, is in, in that in prosperity, how to guard our hearts. Thank God reverently. Share it generously. And the third is walk circumpently. And he actually goes through the passages of scripture that actually just speak about the cares of this life. That the danger is that in excess, that our heart gets weighed, weighed down with the cares of this life. And that we're actually not prepared at the day of the coming of the Lord. Um, so anyway, A.W. Tozer, I highly, highly recommend this book. Um, so moving on to Acts chapter 21, if everybody wants to turn there with me, or you may already be there, um, this is actually where we find Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and what we find in this chapter is that basically, the we had actually gone through this last week as far as all throughout scripture, the Holy Spirit had been warning him that he was going to be greeted with persecution, hardship, and difficulty when he was in Jerusalem. So he actually knew what was ahead for him, and he actually knew what to anticipate and what was coming. Um, So we actually find that in verse chapter 11, and in verse, yeah, no, actually, verse chapter 11 is where we actually find them, Agabus, pleading with him. And it says, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, uh, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking, 
So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt. It was Paul's belt. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when he heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him, do not go up to Jerusalem. You actually find, um, which we did cover last week in the, the prior verses, actually in verse chapter, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 4, it says, In finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, this is actually what it says, they told Paul through the Holy Spirit, do not go up to Jerusalem. And pretty much every commentator that you study is, it will say that it's not that the Holy Spirit was saying, do not go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was speaking to them of the hardship and the difficulty. It was the Holy Spirit speaking. But in their natural, carnal mind and heart, they were interpreting as, don't go. Don't do it. And the beauty of Paul is, is that they use even the word Holy Spirit. That through the Holy Spirit, we're saying, don't go. The Holy Spirit's spoken to us. And he has enough wisdom and foresight and insight to be able to decipher and say, that is not the word of the Lord. Yes, the warning of what I'm going to face is true, but I am to go. So basically we find these two places of them urging and pleading with Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. And to be honest, I probably have enough self-preservation inside of me that if somebody urged me and pleaded me not to go because I was going to not come home to my family, I'd probably be like, word of the Lord, I'm staying home. <laughs> Honestly, I have, I, I, maybe there's somebody in this room that with the, the, the pleadings and the warnings of friends of knowing, actually not even knowing, to the level of severity of what you're about to face. I mean, you would have to have such a sure word from the Lord. But what we actually find is Paul is resolute and that nothing moves him. We find actually in verse 13, this is Paul's response. Paul answered and said, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, they ceased and said, The will of the Lord be done. This is Paul. I am, not, I am ready to not... And you've got to remember... I mean, honestly, he had no romantic view of, I will be persecuted, and there will just be great extraordinary grace that will come upon me. The guy had already been chained and beaten and stoned, and I mean, what the dude had already gone through. So I'm going to be honest with you, I think in that place that when you almost like you have a memory of pain and, and suffering and affliction, there must be some place of self-preservation that you don't want to endure that one more time. But instead he's saying, I'm prepared not only to be bound, but I'm prepared to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. But what, really what I want us to begin to do is I want us to look at the life of Paul. Because for several things, is number one, what this speaks to is his citizenship was not upon this earth. His citizenship was in heaven. He was not living for the temporal age, for the comfort, even for his own success in ministry, for any of those things. He was living for something far beyond what many of us have even grasped. He was living for something, and we find it all throughout his writings, that somehow he had captured a vision of eternity, and it is actually what became the driving force of not seeking his own life, but willingly laying down his own life for the glory of another. The extraordinary thing about the Apostle Paul, when you look at his life, is he had been completely ruined for this age. You know, I love it. Uh, I lost my Bible, and for weeks I've had to be using my husband's old Bible that he doesn't use anymore. 
Um, but a few weeks ago when I picked it up, and I, I know it was that he got this very young, he was ministering in Michigan, and a prophet gave it to him. But while I was flipping through it the first time, I opened it, and it really does speak to the message that we're going to address today with the life of Paul. He actually, I don't, I don't know which um, speaker it was, but he took notes, and he, and he specifically said, he said, it's the generation that is not influenced by the world that will influence the world. And see, so oftentimes, as the body of Christ, what we want is we do. We want to influence business and culture and media and society and fashion. And somehow we want this realm of influence because it's, it's God's desire. It's God's order. It's how he's ordained it, that we would be the head and not the tail and all of those things. But the, the, the thing is, is we desire that place of influence. But all the while, we are being fashioned into the image and the likeness of the world. We are living according to the kingdom of this age rather than the kingdom of God. And somehow we sit back and we wonder, why is the church not the dominant? Why is the church not in the head in society? Why are we not the trendsetters? Why are we not? We wonder all of those things. And at the end of the day, it comes down to the life of Paul. It comes down to looking. I'm going to be honest with you. This, this gentleman influenced the world. Not only is what we have today the fruit of Paul's life. I mean, we've gone even through the, through the book of Acts. We've seen how even our theology and our understanding of salvation is by grace alone is because of this dude. I mean, we go all through that his life not only affected Judea, Samaria, all of that region, but the ends of the earth and even generations to come, that we are the fruit of somebody's life. I mean, obviously, I get it, I understand, ultimately it's Jesus Christ. I'm in no way putting Paul, you know, above Jesus. But looking at this gentleman's life, that literally his life shook not only the region that he lived in, but for generations to come. I mean, we're all still reading about him. I mean, the Bible that is printed globally is reading of, of the Apostle Paul. And really what it speaks to is, I mean, we're actually going to look at a, two really key passages of Scripture about the Apostle Paul. But what it speaks to is this is a man that had such a heavenly vision that he was not living for this age, and that is why he had influence in this realm. That is why the Lord actually could entrust him with a voice that would shake and rattle and change and shape. That is why the miracles, the signs and the wonders, that is why the New Testament church had been birthed through this reality. It's because this world had no place inside of him. So therefore, he actually stood at a place of being able to influence it rather than being influenced. And it's really, it's that place of really what you fear is what you become a victim to. What you desire, you will obey. Anything that you are longing for, I mean, it could even just be prestige or, or image or, I mean, any of those things. If it's, if it's what becomes the desire of your heart, your whole life and priorities are going to align under that. We actually went through it last week, actually, and... Um, we talked about how if you sow a thought, you reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap character. And if you sow character, you reap a destiny. How literally the destiny that you will walk out really comes from the, from the place of our thoughts. So then when we begin to medita meditate upon certain things or desire certain things or set certain things as our ambition and our goal and what we're, we actually end up aligning our life and our priorities and our choices after that, and that becomes our destiny. But really what we find is we find the Apostle Paul in the place of his thought realm 
that he actually said it this way. He said, set your affections on things that are above and not on things of this earth. He set his heart, his desires, his meditations on things that are above and not on things of this earth. And see, oftentimes in our uh, you know, American society, I'm sure all of you have heard the, the saying that you become so heavily minded, you're no earthly good. Have you, has any of you ever heard that? I mean, to be honest with you, I'm going to say this. Yes, I know that there's those people that are so flighty and like super spiritual that they're always living in some crazy realm of revelation and they're never actually doing anything. <laughs> but that's actually not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about living in the place of communing with God of hearing the voice of God, and from that place of having a relationship with the man Christ Jesus, from that place of us valuing the kingdom of God above all else, you become more fruitful and effective in the earth earth and realm because of it. And really what that looks like is that instead of you toil and labor for, for months or even years to see certain things come to pass, that in the realm of the supernatural, when you partner with the heart of God, there's exponential increase. And you actually can do far more than you ever could if you tried to do it in the realm of, I'm going to work my way through it, I'm going to fight my way through it, I'm going to do it according to the principles of A, B, C, D in our culture and society to build success. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and truly wait upon him for his wisdom, his counsel, his strategy, his insight, and really, honestly, it's, it's the way of the kingdom. It's from that place that true fruitfulness and true vitality and true, true, true strength comes. Um, I want us to take, actually, sometimes, well, actually, I'll, I'll reference this. I don't want you to turn there. Um, just for the sake of time, but for how many of you are familiar in Philippians 1, 19 through 22? It's actually, it, it speaks of what Paul was saying, and he says, for I know that, um, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And then in verse 21, for me to live as Christ. What he's saying, for me to live in the earthen realm, that Christ is exalted, but to die is gain. He actually had no fear of death. He was declaring in that place that to die, that there is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what can I choose? I cannot tell you. He's literally saying almost, I can't choose between the two. I don't know if I want to live on in the flesh, and yes, Christ is glorified, or if actually I want to die so I can live in union and fellowship with God, that I come to the end of my journey. Most of us have such an attachment to, you know, I remember when I was a teenager, I used to be like, I want to live my life. I don't want to, you know, I don't want Jesus to come back before I get to, you know, we have such an ambition for, crazy! I mean, <laughs> I now all the time am saying, Abram, just pray, sweet Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> I mean, like, the perspective of I love my life, I love my family, I love all of those things, but my heart for the return of Jesus Christ there is nothing upon this earth that I aspire to attain to or to, to accomplish. I desire more than anything. And this is really what, what Paul was actually de- declaring, is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's an extraordinary, powerful statement. Um, but if you'll turn specifically to Philippians 3, verse 2 through 11. 
And this just once again really highlights Paul's position and posture. He starts out in verse 2 by saying, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware uh, of mutilation. I actually, I'm going to just stop for a second before we go on because, it, I mean, it's awful. He's saying beware of dogs. I mean, the first thing is you're like, what the heck, who's he calling a dog? Like, what's the... He actually, when you study certain commentators, what he actually is saying here is he's referencing dogs, and this is actually what it says, is those who would bark, bite, and devour, those who preach the simplicity of the gospel. What he's calling dogs is saying the very people that appear religious, but they're always looking for something greater and loftier. And what they want to do is condemn those that are going after authenticity and simplicity. And the reason he uses the word dogs is specifically the, the barking, biting, and devouring. That it's almost like there's a devouring that want, like wants to intimidate, but also cause the silencing. And basically what Paul's going on to say is that that is what he preaches and declares. That he's not moving forward from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. That there are always those looking, searching to move on to something more, but they despise the simplicity of the teaching of Jesus Christ, they have yet to attain to the fundamentals of the faith. They don't want to hear any more about love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul. They think that they're too mature or they've moved beyond that. But honestly, when we have a tender heart before the Lord, the most fundamentals and scripture verses that we have heard again and again and again, when our heart is truly tender to the Lord, what it does is it strikes our heart in a place of saying, I want to live that in reality. I want to walk that in integrity. I want to know the fullness of Christ. It's that place of fellowshipping with who he is. Um, in verse 3 it says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, and this is where I'm sure all of you are familiar with this, passage of scripture, Paul is saying, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, more so than I, and then he goes on to say, circumcised the eighth day, eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, he basically goes through to say, um, and I'll, in two seconds, I'm just going to give to you, what he highlights in this passage of scripture is, number one, he goes very clearly through his birthright. Through his birthright and through his privilege, there was a sense of entitlement of who he was. It would be kind of like, even within us in our culture, that through birth, we inherently inherited a noble birth name or a noble birthright. Um, he was a native Israelite of the stock of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, in which tribe the temple stood and which adhered to, to Judah when all the other tribes revolt. Benjamin was the father's darling, and this was the favored tribe a Hebrew of Hebrews, an Israelite on both sides by his father and by his mother. I mean, you just have to understand that through and through and through, if there's anything that he could give credit or to boast in, that he had all of it to, to claim. Um, from one generation to another, none of his ancestors had matched with Gentiles. He was purely, 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 purely Jewish through and through. Um, 
He could boast of his relations to the church and the covenant. He was circumcised the eighth day. He had the, uh, the token of God's covenant in his flesh. He was circumcised the very day which God had appointed. From his learning, he was a Pharisee. He was brought up at the, at the feet of a prominent doctor of the law. He was a scholar learned in all of the learning of the Jews. This is Paul. I mean, so we kind of think about it as a man that he counted nothing of his life. I mean, that's pretty easy for us to understand. If you come from the slums, you got nothing, you got no one, you have no finance, you have no reputation. It's kind of like, to be honest, in our American society, if you have nothing to lose, it's easy to go to the mission field. Because you kind of, it's actually said, when you study missions and when you actually study the growth of world missions, it's actually said, the more you have, the harder it is for you to go. It, it's true. I mean, I get that. I completely understand that and get that. And this is, But this is Paul, who basically in the area of learning, that he studied under the most astute doctor that the, in the place of education. And then it goes on, to, on as far as um, in his conversion experience, even in his conversion experience, what he could attest to. Um, and then it goes on as far as even him persecuting Christians. And, and, and basically all the way around that if there was anything to boast in, it was Paul who had much to boast in. But then this is actually what we find. He says, but in what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things for the, uh, as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. That's verse 7. I'm just going to read it one more time because it really speaks to when they were trying to urge him and compel him not to go to Jerusalem. The ability that he had in the face of knowing that he would be bound, and even as he said he was prepared to die, this is the key where he says, but, but what things were gained to me, these, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And one commentator says he tells us what it was that he was ambitious of and re- reached after, he's, and meaning he's articulating that what Paul was ambitious for was the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. What he was reaching after was the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. It was the knowledge of Christ, the Lord Jesus. Um, then it goes on, uh, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, which he truly did, for those of you that have been studying the life of Paul with us, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That was the greatest pursuit of his life, was the gaining of Christ. That in all things, that that would be our great ambition, that we would gain Christ. That in every decision that we make, that in every move that we make, in all of the, and everything, that our great ambition would be that we would gain Christ. In verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him that I might know him. This is what we find over and over in Paul's life, that I might know him. That I might know him. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I actually, there's another passage of scripture, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with it. Um, In Matthew 16, 23, how many of you guys are familiar with the story where it's basically Jesus is going to be crucified? It's the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter basically is pleading with him. 
and trying to basically talk him out of, I guess it's a similar situation. They're trying to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. Peter's trying to plead with Jesus. Jesus looks at Peter. I'm sure when I say this passage of scripture, you're all familiar with it. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Just simply because Peter was trying to persuade him. I mean, Peter wasn't, he says, get behind me, Satan. And his explanation of that is, for you are mindful of the ways of man and not the ways of God. I mean, ultimately, that is actually what Agabus and these other, uh, other gentlemen and friends of Paul's, they were being mindful of the ways of man, of saying, go, don't go to Jerusalem. You'll lose everything. You'll be bound. You could even die there. But really, where Jesus made this declaration of, you are mindful of the ways of man and not the ways of God. I truly believe that the reason that Paul lived in such freedom, such liberty, Paul, it's Paul that declared, I am content whether I abase or whether I abound. He found contentment in all places. I mean, he testifies of in, in starvings or in feastings. Wherever he was, I mean, he declares, I, I'm content. Yeah. I mean, I can honestly say, I strive to be content. <laughs> I mean, it's my, my desire. I definitely work on it. I definitely try to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. But can I honestly say, I mean... How many of us live our life grumbling and complaining? I mean, honestly, when a circumstance doesn't go the way that we want it to, but the, my husband raises yeah. No, do not, no show hands. We're all guilty. But this was Paul's declaration of whether I abase or whether I abound. He says, I have found contentment. But you know what? The reason that Paul found contentment is, is even this understanding that we find where Jesus was declaring to Peter. He said, you're mindful of the ways of man and not the ways of God. Paul was mindful of the ways of God. Paul became heavenly minded. He was one that was meditating on the kingdom which is to come. And the thing is, is as fruitful, I think, as we all desire to be in this life and in this age, I, I think we all desire fruitfulness and productivity. We have to understand that the greatest place of fruitfulness and productivity is, is the more we get lost and captured by the kingdom of heaven. The, when we live according to the value system of the kingdom of heaven, where that determines our choices, where that determines our conversation, where that determines our time, our priorities, our activities, what we spend our money on, all of those things. And see, oftentimes what we think is that the more that we surrender to Christ, that somehow the more drudgery and difficult and hard it's going to get. That somehow I'm missing out on all of the fun or all of my liberty. But the life of Paul testifies that he had abandoned all. He was no longer living for this age. He was no longer living for his own building of reputation or climbing the ladder. He was so living for an age to come, but he actually had the life of contentment, peace, joy, that there was nothing that could hold him. No fear of man. No fear of death. Can you imagine being willing to go anywhere and do anything with absolutely no fear or concern for what tomorrow, what it would look like? Utter obedience. I mean, honestly, most of us, we have our checklist of kind of like, God, I'll do whatever you ask as long as it looks like, smells like, means that I... <laughs> And honestly, for most of us, in our, in our Americanized perspective, we think that, that really God's desire is only that we would prosper, that he's only going to 
prosper me more. And I believe the Lord desires us to prosper. But if you look at the Apostle Paul, the kingdom of God exponentially increasing because of his willingness to live in utter abandon with no self-preservation, no reserving of self. But really the question comes down to, is what are we mindful of? Really, what is our meditation? And it kind of even goes back to what we were talking about earlier regarding the finances, is that finances in and of themselves are neutral. They're, they're, they're not good, they're not evil. Everything in the, in the area of our life, most of it, it's all our perspective and what we're mindful of. Is that if we're saying, God, I want your will to be done, no matter what it looks like, then all of the things in our life actually become a vehicle of worship before the Lord. But then if it becomes that we're living for certain things, and they're kind of unspoken things, like, let's just use this as an example, the love of money. I don't walk around my house going, I love money, I love money, I love money, I love money. I love money, I love money, I love money. But let's put it really in spiritual terms here. Our church needs a new building. Right? That, mean, that means finances. And thank God, thank God, thank God, we sent out a newsletter, we're having discussions about possible investments and things like that. God is amazing. But I'm going to say this to you. In a very, I'll use myself as the example. No, none of you. <laughs> but case in point, if simply the desire for increased finances for our ministry, and, and get me here, I don't, I've never had an ambition, any of you that know me, for a big ministry. I want to see the gospel preached in the nations of the earth. I want to minister to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. I have a heart for compassion ministry. I have the heart for the planting of houses of prayer. That, that's what my heart burns for. But in order to do that, you need people, you need manpower, you need resource. But this is my point in saying this, is if my ambition is how are we going to grow and how are we going to get finance, if that becomes my root motive, I'm going to be honest with you, I could end up doing things that are not the will of God. Is my end result a desire, obviously, to plant houses of prayer and raise up orphanages? Totally. But if, it's not, if I end up putting my hand to do something that God did not call me to, it could actually distract me from the very way or the avenue by which he wants to release the finance for the next season. What that looks like is, I mean, how many of you, I've sat with very prominent men and women of God, literally, and I shouldn't use this example because I am working on a book. <laughs> so I shouldn't even use it, but, and I know it's from the Lord what we're working on. But the kind of thing, it's very in natural terms. People will sit with you and say, write a book. It generates finances. It will really bring in revenue for you and your family. You guys will be able to, in a very natural sense, you can start to say, okay, I'll write a book. But let me just say something. If you start on endeavors and things because you're mindful of the ways of man and not the ways of God, you could be distracted and toiling and labor into something like the Word of God says, there's a way that seems right into, unto man, but in the end it only leads to death. That there's no life that comes forth from it. But the Lord might speak something completely, utterly different. Completely, utterly different. And from that, there's life and blessing and breakthrough that is released. And really that's what the question comes down to. Because if my obsession is, Lord, we want to do your will. I don't care what it looks like, and I don't care how you do it. If that is my obsession and I'm mindful of the ways of God rather than the ways of man of how to build it, how to strategize it, how to structure it, how to make it a machine that moves, you know, all of those things. But it, the question comes down to, what are we mindful of? In every area of our life, are we mindful of the ways of God? Are we mindful of the ways of man? And this is what we find with Paul. 
As he was mindful of the ways of God, and in being mindful of the ways of God, the gospel went forth. He goes to Jerusalem. Crazy. This whole thing is crazy. He goes to Jerusalem. He presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you want to know what the outcome is? The outcome in verse chapter 30, and it says, And all of the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. This right here is a pivotal verse in scripture, because really what this was, is this was Jerusalem. Once again, once again, they rejected the Messiah, and then all, all these years later, Paul is sent, and once again, they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is them saying, we, re, we are rejecting, and we're closing the doors. That's literally what they did. They closed the doors, and then we find 70 years later, we find the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. But I'm going to be honest with you. In our humanistic, intellectual, rationalization in the Western world, oftentimes we would look at this and think, okay, Paul went through all this suffering and all this hardship. And look at the fruit of that. Well, now, must not have been God. I mean, we kind of look at, we are so results-based. Like, if it doesn't work out, play out, all the ways that in our mind look successful and prosperous in the ways that God would do it. But instead, this is an offense. This is a complete and utter offense to the mind of man. To say that basically Paul went, he put everything on the line. I mean, this was like, everything was leading up to this. And now actually we're going to spend four chapters over the next week looking literally at seven days in Jerusalem, the final days of his ministry, of what took place, of what transpired. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. But what the life of Paul speaks of is he was mindful of the ways of God and not the ways of man. And each and every single one of us, as Daryl was ministering today and he was really singing about the presence of God, ultimately for each and every one of us, the place of true liberty, and he was even ministering about joy, it's when we come to that place where we are not living for the temporal. That we are not living for what we can produce or what we see with you know, the sight of our eyes or the hearing of our ears. But that we're living for a greater reality that is beyond that. That when he was singing even about the presence, I was reminded actually, many of you are aware of Mother Teresa and the extraordinary ministry of her life. I mean, Mother Teresa is amazing. And basically somebody asked her one time, they said, how is it that you continued for all of those years steadfast in ministry? Because I encourage you to study her life. The sister went through hardship after hardship, years of delay, finally got the money to build the orphanage, then they brought in a bulldozer and knocked down the bricks that she herself built. I mean, it's horrifying, the hardship this woman endured. But she kept going. And now she's left a legacy on the earth. But they said to her, how did you keep going through everything you went through? And her reply was, never lose the joy of loving Jesus. Never lose the joy of loving Jesus. See, if we lose the joy of loving Jesus, the, the supremacy of Jesus, we've lost everything. It becomes about so many other things. But when everything in our life, every detail, every relationship, every job, every decision that we're making is about the joy of loving Jesus and, and staying in the joy of loving him, that's actually where we find life and liberty. That's where we find peace. That's where we find freedom. And as Daryl was singing that, I was just thinking, I was like, so many things, probably every single person in this room, I, I, I would venture to say that anything you may be, may be facing, 
that just simply by getting into the presence of Jesus, just back to the place of his presence. It could, I'm not going to say it's going to change every circumstance, but it will even change your heart and your emotion, your perspective, and then he has the power to change circumstance on your behalf. So let's just take some time actually really responding to kind of what the Lord was doing in worship as far as this place of the presence of God. And, and I really, I think what I want us to do is specifically respond to this place, are, are we mindful of the ways of man or are we mindful of the ways of God? Have we somehow gotten into the place of trying to produce or bring about certain results in our life through our own wisdom and ingenuity? But really, as Daryl was singing about the presence of God, that that's where we find joy and we're satisfied. Of really coming to the resolve that all we have need of is in the presence of God. Everything that we have need of emotionally, if you're lacking joy, I guarantee if you get into the presence of God, your joy will be restored. If you're even lacking strength, if you're just in a place of weariness and being fatigued through the hardship of life, in the presence of God, God is where we find joy and strength and peace. All of those things.